morning, everyone. Great to see all of you. Uh, to say it again, it is a beautiful fall day in the city. As you know, this coming Tuesday is the election, and we are living through a historic time in our nation, as well you know, as our city, our nation is more divided than it's been since the Civil War. I thought that was like a melodramatic quote, and then I read the official sociological survey, and it's very true. The political polarization, for all sorts of reasons, is at an all-time high in over a century. And our city has been torn open, as we all know and even feel and carry around in our body right now at an emotional level, by just months of violence between protesters and police. With the shooting of Kevin Peterson just a few days ago in Vancouver, things continue to spiral. The air is just thick right now. Walking around the city, even on a beautiful day, the air is just thick with angst and anxiety and so much anger. And you know, the call of Jesus on his followers, and that's what we are, that's who we are. We are a community of followers of Jesus. That's what we do. We practice the way of Jesus together on the streets of the city that we call home. And the call of Jesus on his followers, now as always, in a time of you know upheaval and fear and polarization and anger and outrage, or in a time of relative peace and quiet, always, the call of Jesus on his people is to be in prayer at the place where the world is in pain. And right now, the place where the world, or at least our nation and our city is in pain, is in politics. And let me just read this to you. Sometimes I just come back over and over to scripture, in particular, over the last year, and would encourage you to do the same day after day. Let me read to you from 1 Timothy chapter 2. I urge then, Paul writes, I ur notice that language of urgency. First of all, top priority. There's other things that matter too, but here's the number one thing that petitions, prayers, intercession, and even thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings, and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God our Savior, who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. We are to pray for all people, but especially for kings, or in America, since we threw off the kings many hundreds of years ago, for presidents and all of those in authority, in particular, I think of those in political office, quote, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. How does that sound? Does, would any of you like to live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness? I'm guessing I'm not the only one who would love to see peace and justice and just a deep breath in the season to come. But, you know, there are times when we can't, when that's just not a feasible option, either because of the abuse of power by those in political office or by social unrest and anarchy, anarchy from those in the streets. And Paul is no stranger to this, lest you interpret this to be some kind of maintain the status quo kind of thing. Most writing, Paul, who was most likely, most likely writing from prison, was most likely writing, scholars argue, under the reign of Emperor Nero, who was the worst of the worst, his reign of terror. He was literally, historians argue, he was not sane, and he was cruel and vicious, would literally light women and children who were Christians on fire and burn them alive in his backyard. This is the one that Paul is saying, pray for him. Prayers, petitions, intercession, even thanksgiving, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives and not have to go to jail for preaching the gospel or whatever it is. And for Paul, we are to channel, no matter what season you are living through, no matter what the political climate is like in your era of history, we are to channel all of our angst and anxiety and anger, all of our hopes and all of our fears, not into another social media outrage post, but into prayer. That's where we are to vent all of that inner emotion from our soul out to God. In prayer, we partner with the living God to kind of bend the arc of the universe into God's will, or at least in the direction of God's will. Prayer is not just a talking at the sky. It does something in heaven and on earth. It changes reality. When we pray, we partner with God. That is our primary work. It doesn't mean we don't do other work around justice and voting and all this stuff, but prayer is our first and most important work. 
And when we pray, whether our prayers are answered or not, or answered the way we want them to be or not, whether it goes the way we want it to go or not, either way, in prayer, we come back to our center in God. And we remember there is another king, and we belong to his kingdom. Our secondary citizenship is in the United States of America. Our primary citizenship is in the kingdom of God. And that kingdom is not under duress right now. The future of that kingdom is not in question. That kingdom is not in decline. That kingdom is like a small boulder, like Daryl said last week, that is slowly but surely consuming the world in love. So on that note, just two very simple kind of calls to you. The first is Tuesday on Election Day, we are doing prayer every hour on the hour from 8 a.m. to 8 p.m., starting with morning worship at 8 a.m., upstairs in the auditorium, and then at 9, and then at 10, then 11. Please join us. It's very safe. It's no contact. You come in. There's max 50 people. We're all six feet apart in a giant circle, and we just want to pray. We will not pray. This will anger some of you and put many of you at ease. We will not pray for a specific politician by name or a political party to take power or lose power, we will pray Jeremiah 29, that text from a few weeks ago, as the prophet Jeremiah taught us to pray for the peace and prosperity of the city to which God has carried you away into exile. We will be praying all day long for peace. And so please come and just channel all of that in you into prayer. And if you're not comfortable coming or you can't get in because space is limited, join us at 8 a.m. That one will go online. You can join that via your web browser. And um, secondly, I just want to take you for a few minutes just to pray right now, if you're up for that, before we open the scriptures. So I invite you right now just to take a deep, close your eyes if you want. Those of you gathering with us online, wherever you're at with your two-year-old, running around at your feet or wherever you are with your community around you. <sighs> Take a few breaths. Just come back to the moment, to your soul before God. Holy Spirit, we welcome you into the temple of our body, into all that we're feeling numb or angry or indifferent or scared to death. We just welcome you into our body, into the memories that we carry in our body, the thoughts that tumble through our mind and play on the video screen of our imagination. Come, Holy Spirit. Just invite you to take a moment and set your mind on Jesus, just via the gift of your imagination. As it says in scripture, fix your thoughts on him. I invite you also just to envision his kingdom spreading throughout the world right now as we speak. And to envision his return, which could be in seconds or in millennia, I have no idea, but to Envision Jesus' return to rule and to reign over a kingdom without end that will never be overthrown or destroyed, where every tear will be wiped away, no more sorrow or death or crying or pain, for the old order of things that we're living through right now, that order will have passed away. Just envision that future reality invite you just to take a moment to place your deep trust and confidence in Jesus, to set you firmly in his kingdom now, and to bring it to bear on the earth in his time. And now I invite you just to hold Tuesday and the coming weeks and months in your mind before your heart. If you even want in your imagination just to set the election before the throne of Jesus, the king of all kings, the Lord of all lords, the president of all presidents, the true leader of the free world. And now just pray with me. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debtors as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Thanks, everybody. Christians coming, please turn your Bibles to Matthew as we step back into our teaching series. Beautiful. Good morning, everyone, at least in the room. Good morning. Hey, wow, that was actually a lot better than I was expecting, which I'm sorry if I had low expectations on you, but I was not expecting like that liveliness. Would you just smile, even though you have a mask on, just smile, because it feels good to smile. Oh, man, I am thankful, even as we prayed, like I'm thankful that Jesus is king and that he's good and that he's with us. Oh, that is hopeful. Um, I know a lot of you may not know me. I am new to the city. I just moved here like six weeks ago. My name is Christian. I've met some of you, but basically I only know that you all have eyes. And so um, I don't remember a single face because I haven't seen any of them, but um, it's been good. So as I've met people, and some of you have sent me emails, and that's been so kind. Um, So keep reminding me of your name, and one day, like I promise you, all will be unveiled, and we will get to know each other. Um, We will see clearly, as the book says. There will be an unveiling. Thank you, God, for that. Um, A little bit about me, though. So my, um, I have a great family. I know my mom. She's probably watching right now. Um, I love my mom. My mom is an immigrant from Ethiopia, has lived in this country for 40 years. I'm thankful for that. My dad is, like, one of the most faithful Jesus followers I've ever met. He's just, like, a guy who prays and loves the Lord and loves his kids, and I'm thankful for him. My grandma, um, she's dope. My grandma's 86 and drives. So, like... And she's not allowed, she's like not afraid to put you in your place and like call you out. And I, I just love having a grandma like that. Um, my younger brother just got married. One of my younger brothers got married this year. So I have an incredible sister-in-law named Lee Mighty. And um, she has the best smile and laugh. And then I have two younger brothers, Caleb and Josh, who are three and four years younger than me. Um, Caleb is at Berkeley right now. He's studying to get a degree that is beyond what I can understand. And so he, I think he wants to go into education and be a professor. And then my youngest brother, Josh, is in D.C. working in medicine. Um, and then he's applying to grad schools. And so we have a really boring family. And so um, literally, my, I kind of joke. I was like, my family is basically a bar joke. Like, you have a, you have a doctor, a professor, and a reverend all in a room. <laughs> and so... Um, it's really, really cool. I have a great family who I love, and um, we grew up in a really cool church, and I remember one day sitting in church. I'm a church kid, like grew up in it my whole life, and I remember one day sitting in church, and uh, my pastor, his Pastor Wendy, she looked at us, and she was going to open up a text of the Bible that was super familiar, and she looked at us at the church, and she said, you know what? Sometimes we have to do when we open up the scripture, especially when we go back to something that we've maybe heard before. She said, I invite you, church, to read the Bible and hear the words of Jesus like you've never heard them before. Like you've never heard them before. We're going to get into a text that I have heard so many times. It's one of the most famous, has some of the most famous lines, I think, out of Jesus' mouth. And I encourage you today to do what I'm doing, like as I've even been studying and praying and reading and thinking about this. Would you let Jesus speak to you like he's never spoken to you before? Like for the very first time, hearts open, hands open, just to hear whatever he has to say. Is that cool? Yes? Beautiful. Um, Would you mind standing with me for the reading of God's word? If you're willing and able, please stand. Matthew chapter 19, and we're starting at verse 16. I love that. Sound of like physical Bibles. That's nice. It's so much more gratifying than like the empty slides and swipes of a phone. Here we go. Matthew chapter 19, verse 16. Just then, a man came up to Jesus and asked, Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Why do you ask me about what is good? Jesus replied. There's only one. Who is good. If you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. Which ones? He inquired. Jesus replied, You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, honor your father and mother, and love your neighbor as yourself. All these I have kept, the young man said. What do I still lack? Jesus answered, If you want to be perfect, go. Sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. Then Jesus said to his disciples, truly I tell you, 
It's hard for someone who is rich to enter in the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who's rich to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished and asked, who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. Peter asked him, we have left everything to follow you. What then will there be for us? Jesus said to them, truly, I tell you, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or even children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first. This is God's word. And so would we, would we be good hearers of the word and better doers? May we love Jesus deeply. May we trust what Jesus says. And may we follow Jesus well. If you need a title for what we're talking about today, uh, I just came up with it this morning. It's simply this, sitting at the center. Real quick, maybe like if you're sitting by someone, say, sitting at the center. And then if you're younger than your mother, sit down. If you're younger than your mother, feel free to sit down. Beautiful. And we all understood. I, like I said, I'm new to Portland. I um, just moved here six, six weeks-ish ago, and, um, which means I have really good judgment on timing of when to move somewhere. Um, <laughs> I, I just moved here. And as I've moved here, you know, acclimating to a new city, acclimating to a new people and, like, kind of what things are like and who people are and what a city is like, I've noticed, like, some different things. Of course, Portland is pretty different than Seattle, and all Portlanders are nodding their head almost with a little bit of pride. Yes, Portland is different than Seattle. Um, like, chill, chill. No, I'm becoming, this, this Seattleite becoming Portlander has noticed a few things about this incredible city, this rose city that is sunny and God is faithful. I've noticed a few things about Portland that I just like to share with you because I don't know if you're aware of them. Now, I'm actually pretty, like, I'm starting to love it. Like, I understand. And one of the things I've found that I love most about Portland is the food. And everyone who lives in Portland said amen. The food here, like, I, I will have to say, Seattle's food game is pretty weak compared to Portland. Like, the food, yeah, see, there we go. You know, the food here is good. But I do have to say this. I have to say this. The food here sometimes is a little bit extra. Now, like, yes, okay, if you know Abonics, like, some would say it's doing the most. And what I mean by that is this. When you go to a restaurant, I love, like, if I get French fries, I want ketchup and Tabasco. Like, that's just how I like it. I know my friend Aaron, he's from Portland. He likes mayo. That's great for him. My thing is to give me ketchup and Tabasco. So every time I've gone to a restaurant, I sit down. I say, hey, can I have some Tabasco? And the, the kindest uh, waiter, waitress, server, I don't know what the correct thing to call people is, the person who's being very kind and giving me food, that person, they typically, they take a deep breath in, and they kindly look at me, and they go, well, actually, we don't have Tabasco here. Instead, we have a house-made, homemade, um, like, spread, habanero spread that we came at 4 a.m. just this morning to make for you. The peppers are grown in Seattle. They've been hand-milked just for you this morning to enjoy. And I'm, like, doing the most. I just want some Tabasco. Like, I don't need to know what time you woke up. Like, you're doing the most. I just want Tabasco. Or even the other day, I was with my friend Ryan. We were at a coffee shop, and I ordered this breakfast sandwich. So good. Portland's food, so good. I'm eating the sandwich, and the kind barista looks at me. She goes, actually, it can come with jam. We have three different jam options. And I'm like, that's dope. Like, thank you. Three options. What, what do you have? And she goes, well, we have a watermelon sriracha. <laughs> and I... And you can understand the feelings I had. Or even Tyler, Tyler and I, we were at um, a Mexican restaurant a couple weeks ago, and I remember we were sitting down and um, we got some horchata. I really like horchata, like it's bomb. All like my Latino, I grew up with like a, a good number of Latino friends, like, oh my gosh, it's the best. But they, I went to order it and they said, yes, we have a dairy-free lime horchata. And so I had to call my, like, my Hispanic friends and go, yo, is there such thing as dairy-free Mexican any food? And they were like, no, if you came into my house and told my mom you're dairy-free, she'd just say you're hungry, you're not eating in this house. <laughs> Portland like does the most of this food. But what I actually have appreciated, um, and I think it's becoming helpful, but I think it's really interesting about Portland more than anything, is everybody here talks in cross streets. 
Like, I don't know if you realize this, but I was talking to Brett about this. Like, everybody, when you come here, everyone, you, hey, where's this thing at? Oh, it's on 23rd and Gilroy. And if you're looking at me going, no, it's Gleason, you're the problem. Like, I understand what, and so I look at them and I say, hey, like, where's this at? They tell me the cross streets. I said, oh, I'm not from here. I don't know. And they say, it's a grid. And, I, and they begin to explain to me northwest, southwest, separated by the river, east and west, and then the freeway. And I go, no, no, no. I passed fourth grade. I understand what a grid is. <laughs> I, I'm just new here. I'm just new. I don't know. And so what I need, I grew up in a bigger city. I grew up in the 90s. Just give me a landmark. Tell me, like, show me where something is. If I'm on Burnside and trying to get to 23rd, tell me the Volvo sign. Like, that will show me where I need to go. And someone said, hey, thank you. Amen. Portland, give me. And at the same time, I know it's helpful. It's a joke. But what I found interesting about that is there's something about life and there's something about even journeys that it's really helpful when you have a clear ma- landmark. You have a destination. You have somewhere where you understand, this tells me that I'm where I'm supposed to go. This explains to me, oh, help me figure out if I'm where, if I'm on the right track. Show me where I'm supposed to go. How many conversations and how many conversations go awry in the car because of directions? And every married person said, yes, amen. You understand that when we need good directions. And I think that's a little bit of what's going on in this man's head. You see, this man approaches Jesus in Matthew 19, and he says, Jesus, can you help me make sure I'm going the right way? He asks a question that I think all of us need to ask at some point. Every follower of Jesus has to and should and will ask at some point. Jesus is the most, like, one of the most important questions in all the scripture. Jesus, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? It's a good question. It's a sincere question. It's a question that all of us should ask. And then Jesus replies with the Ten Commandments. Like, and he goes, honor your father and mother, do not steal, do not commit adultery, um, do not bear false witness, etc., etc. Love your neighbor. His summary statement of the commandments. He, he really says an answer that's pretty typical for Jesus. It's all these commandments that if you want to know if you've entered into life, if you want to know if you are a person with eternal life, just look at the byproduct, look at the fruit, look at the way actually you treat people. Hold up. And so Jesus begins to explain this. This man Jesus, are having this conversation. How do I get to life? And, and Jesus goes with the, the commandments. Now, if I can be honest with the, the, Christ, the church background I grew up in, that answer, anytime I got to the Bible, it surprised me. Because in my mind, the framework that I had for following Jesus was, well, shouldn't Jesus answer if this person says, how do I get eternal life? Shouldn't he say forgiveness of sins? Shouldn't he say grace? Shouldn't he say Romans 10, 9, and 10, that if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord and God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Shouldn't the answer be believe? And I know every time I read that growing up, I was like confused. Now is Jesus telling me I need to keep these commandments to have and enter into eternal life? Well, my question and my like even hesitation reveals something about what I approach the scripture with. I come with an assumption that when this man asks Jesus, how do I enter into eternal life? What I actually hear is how do I go to heaven when I die? And that's actually not the framework that this man has. It's not the framework that he's thinking about. He's asking about eternal life. He's asking about actually life of the age to come. He's saying, how do I enter into a different sort of life? How do I enter a life, the life that looks like God is in charge, the kingdom of God? It's interesting that almost interchangeably in this text, we see Jesus and this man and then the disciples almost interchangeably talk about the kingdom of God, eternal life, and salvation. It's like Jesus and eternal life and the kingdom of God somehow are all intertwined together. This man asks about eternal life. Jesus starts to talk about eternal life, and then he moves on to kingdom. Now, eternal life, most of the time, the framework that I understood it, in my mind, it's about time. It's temporal. Jesus, how do I have this life that lasts forever? But actually, the framework that's being worked here isn't just a life that goes on forever. It's not about time. It's about quality. It's qualitative. Jesus, how do I have life of a new sort of quality, the life that you give, the life that's of the kingdom of God, a whole new quality of life. How do I have a life that looks like God is in charge? This man, he's kept the commandments. He responds to Jesus, all these I have kept. Jesus, how do I get life? Keep the commandments. But Jesus, all these things I've kept. Jesus responds to him. If you want to be perfect, and this is where we hear that he's not just a man, but he's a young man. He says, if you want to be perfect, if you want to mature, if you want to, young man, if you want to become an adult, if you want to grow up, go. Sell all you have, give to the poor. You will have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. Jesus is asking this man to be a disciple, like to come follow, to come be a part of these crowds of people who are following Jesus, who are getting to know him as their teacher and as their king. Jesus asked this man and invites him. And yo, like, I know I wasn't alive 2,000 years ago, but I would hope that if Jesus out of his own mouth looked at me and said, Christian, come and follow me. 
Like, you would think that his reaction would be one of, like, joy. I mean, I would hope that if I heard Jesus say, come and follow me, like, out of his very lips, that I would go, yes, okay, like, I am so excited. But this man instead, there's something different going on. You can almost imagine his posture. And the Bible says that he walks away. He goes away. Could you, like, imagine him in that hot day, head hung low, looking at the rocks, walking home with something on his mind? Jesus asked me to follow him. And could you imagine like going to your home that night, getting in, opening the door, and just like, you know when you have a lot on your head and that feeling that you have and people in the room, they see you and they get it. And I could just imagine like going to my mom and like walking in the house and she's like, yo, why is your head so low? Like, why are you, what's on your mind? And I'd be like, well, Jesus asked me to follow him. And mom would be like, why is your head hanging low? Why are you so sad? Like, why are you distraught? Why do you look heavy? Well, Jesus asked me to follow him. But to do that, He said, I have to sell everything. 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 And you could almost feel like the tension that this man's probably thinking. The Bible says he has a lot of possessions. Jesus doesn't only tell him to sell all that he has. He says, sell all that you have and then give to the poor. Which is basically like, I think Jesus is trying to get at, sell it and then don't have a way back. Don't just sell it and invest it. Don't sell it and put it in savings. You don't get a Roth IRA. You don't get a trust fund money. There's no plan B. There's no exit strategy. Sell it all. No plan B. Come follow. This man, the Bible says, walks away sad because he has many possessions. And all of a sudden, this passage in Matthew 19, Jesus' words, they actually get a lot more personal. Now, if you're a recovering skeptic, hello, like me, um, maybe you hear Jesus' teaching and you hear Jesus basically tell a rich man to give up his riches and possessions. And maybe if you're like a millennial or, you know, just a recovering skeptic or you just use social media a lot, you're probably like, yo, yes, Jesus, amen. Tell the rich person out there to sell all his riches. Do that. Like, he needs to give it away. Shouldn't he? Like, don't we all get a little bit excited and we... We, we cheer. But first of all, friends, like this isn't a normative command that Jesus actually gives to all of his followers. You actually don't hear him say this anywhere else. You actually, you think about the fact that Jesus' ministry, it was supported by wealthy and influential women and men. You think about how Jesus got around. You think about who helped Jesus get buried in a tomb and off the cross. You think about even when Jesus approaches Zacchaeus. When Zacchaeus meets the real Jesus, he just out of this like overflowing gratitude in his heart does a form of reparations, gives away half of the things that he has, but it was never a command of Jesus. And so all of a sudden, when we cheer and we get a little bit excited because Jesus tells a wealthy person to give up their wealth and their possessions, I think for a second we have to maybe let the mirror turn on us for a little bit because the fact that any of us are in this room or any of us have a cell phone to watch this on means that in the grand scheme of human history, we're the most wealthy people to ever live. Jesus isn't just talking to this man there, and he's not just talking to the wealthy person or, you know, for those of us who've been wounded by the wealthy and even wounded by wealthy church leaders, he's not just talking about that Christian leader or that pastor, you know, he's not just talking about preachers and sneakers. He's talking (laughs) to me, and he's talking to you. My family, my, like I said, my mom's an immigrant from Ethiopia. My family in Ethiopia wouldn't even understand the amount of wealth that's in this room of just 50 people. Think of a grass hut, like that's where my mom came from. You can't imagine that Jesus is only talking to this rich man. He's talking to me, and he's talking to you. So then what is Jesus doing? If he's not giving this as a normative command, what is he doing? Well, in Mark's account, there's synoptic gospels. In Mark's account, when this story happens, Mark tells us that Jesus looked at the man and loved him. He looked at him. But, like, have you ever been looked at? Like, not just, like, seen, but looked at. Like, looked, people, they notice you. Have you ever walked into a room and someone sees you? Like, there's something about being seen where they can read you and know what you're. Jesus looks at this man and loves him. And what he does is he actually answers his question. He says, oh, you want to come and follow me? I see the thing that you have to have or do to come and follow. And it's interesting that the one thing this man needed, the one thing this man had, the one thing that was stopping him, actually, from following Jesus, the one thing that was stopping this man from having what he wanted was actually the things that he had. What must I do? It's basically Jesus, he shows that this man, he lacks by what he has. His real problem is not that he's rich. I think his real problem is that riches have him. All of a sudden, 
we realize that we're not too different from this man. Like, we're all truthfully on a quest for eternal life. We're all on a journey for the kingdom. We all, every human being, not just us in this church, every person longs for the kingdom of God. We all long for life of a new quality. We all long for the thing of life that is under God's rule. The man asks Jesus, what must I do? Jesus basically says, you can't earn it. You can't buy your way in. Your, all your status and all the things that you've done before, they won't get you in. You have to enter. And the only way to enter for you is by changing the thing that's at the middle. You know, this is about a kingdom. It's not about getting to heaven when you die. It's you're entering a kingdom, which means for you to enter the kingdom, you have to make your life about the king. In other words, there has to be a different center of your life. There needs to be a different center. The whole kingdom of God, it's about what is at the center of your life. It's not just about the boundaries of who's in or out. It's about what is the thing that's at the very center of your life, at your heart, what drives you, what are you moving towards? What is at the center? The kingdom is about, really, the king being at the center. Or in other words, like, what life is like when God is in charge? Do you remember growing up, did you ever have, like, a favorite parent? Or you shouldn't do that. Did you ever have, like, a favorite friend's parent? Who, like, when you went, or a favorite friend's house? Why? Why did you like the house? Well, because you liked what it was like when they were in charge. You liked living into the kingdom, their kingdom. This man, he wanted to get to the kingdom, but Jesus, and he wanted to get into the kingdom, but Jesus, he really wanted the kingdom to get into this man. He wanted him. This man wanted a new quality of life, but what was really stopping him from stepping into God's rule was actually the things that he had. In so many ways, he's basically, I think, he's, ba- he's breaking the 10th commandment. Don't covet. Don't desire. In the New Testament, the word often is used, epimetheia. It's this idea of over-desiring. It's not just about wanting bad things. The word lust, actually, the New Testament, isn't only about desiring bad things, even though for sure it's that. It also can be about desiring good things too badly. It's like he just keeps on wanting and wanting. But what he's really breaking is the first commandment. It seems like this man has another God. He has another thing at the center. Your God is your king is the thing that's at the center of your heart. You know, your heart is basically a throne that needs something at the center. It needs something to rule it and to guide it, to lead it. That's why we're even about a rule of life. We need something to help shape us and form us to live into a new vision, a new quality of life. This man, through Jesus' few questions, is starting to see that he has something else at the center. Now, how do you see what's at the center? How do you see what your functional God is? Some some language we talk about attachments. How do you find what's at the center? Well, often look to your emotions. Like what drives you? What stirs you? Not like what do you get emotional about, but what's the first thing that you think of when you wake up? What keeps your thoughts and holds your attention all throughout the day? What can you not really let go of? What do you have to keep thinking about? What keeps playing on your mind? What impacts your body and your gut and your, what's at the center? For this man, it was money and possessions. And let's just be honest, great first sermon on staff here. You get to talk about money. But a lot of us, it's money and possessions. For a lot of us, it's so easy that we long for and desire money and possessions. And let's be honest, if someone came up to me after the gathering, like, hey, I just wanted to bless you out of Tesla. It's yours. I would probably be like, please, Jesus, tell me yes, and let me wisp it into the Portland clouds. Like, thank you, God. (laughs) I'd be so excited. But truthfully, like possessions and money, they're not just the God or a centerpiece for the rich and the wealthy, the middle class and the poor also. It's a God. Isn't it interesting that every culture has an understanding of wealth and power and influence? Isn't it interesting that, there, that every religion virtually on this planet talks about possessions and money? Isn't it interesting that Jesus talks about riches and money more than he talks about hell? Jesus realizes there's something going on in the human heart that not just the wealthy want wealth, want wealth. All of us, deep down, we want it. And maybe money isn't your thing. Maybe you're like, actually, Christian, I don't struggle with possessions and wealth, which I'm like, that's such a gift. Praise God for that. But if it's not that, I think we all want the things that wealth and money promise. You know, wealth and money make promises. They promise safety. They promise security. They promise the God of my city, Seattle. They promise comfort. They promise the God of my new city, Portland, pleasure. Money promises a life of joy. It actually promises a whole new quality of life. It promises a kingdom. But it promises, honestly, the thing that I think most of us want in 2020 more than anything. Money promises a life without vulnerability. Money promises that, oh, if you have me, you'll be safe and secure. You won't be vulnerable. I mean, isn't that why we kind of envy the rich in some ways? It doesn't seem like the problems of life touch them. They have a whole other quality of life. Money is the center of this man's life. Money is a God at the center of this man's life. And every God leads you somewhere. It's not neutral. It's not stagnant. Every God leads you somewhere. So where does this God lead him? 
Jesus says, no, actually Matthew tells us that this man, he walks away in despair. He's left lacking. He's left wanting. And I wonder if that's where all gods really lead. If they lead us, they promise so much. They offer us so much. But do they really deliver on their promise? Do you remember, I know Portland's into niche cinematography. Um, do you remember that 1992 classic Aladdin? Um, <laughs> Aladdin is the story, of course, about this young kind of rags to riches story. But what actually I think has been interesting as I've been thinking about this last few days, it's also not just the triumph of Aladdin, it's the tragedy of Jafar. If you don't know the story, um, go watch it, Arabian Nights, it's great, but um, not the Will Smith version, as much as we love Will, like go to the 1992 OG version. Um, anyway, you go and you watch the movie, Jafar, he's the servant of a king. He has some form of wealth and power, but he's not at the top, and all he wants for more than anything else is to no longer be subservient. He wants to climb to the top, he wants to have more. And so what does he do? He devises a plan to finally wish for more wishes, to get the thing that he really longs for. The first thing is he wishes to reign as sultan on high. And he sits on the throne of power. He gets to be first in the kingdom. And all of a sudden, he doesn't really feel like first. It's not enough. So he asks for another wish. He wishes to be an all-powerful sorcerer. He not only has the throne, but now he has power beyond imagine, but it's still not enough for him. All of a sudden, Jafar, he wishes again, not for more wishes. He wishes to be an all-powerful genie, more powerful than anything else. He finally has the power and the wealth and everything that he wants. And what happens? Jafar finds himself all of a sudden in chains. And his life begins to spiral into a tiny little space, not a good quality of life. As the theologian said, phenomenal cosmic power, itty-bitty living space. <laughs> but it's not wrong. He was promised so much. If he just got to have the wishes that he really longed for, he would get so much. He would have a kingdom. He would have power. He'd have wealth and everything he has. And yet he finds himself in chains and he's crying out almost in despair, feeling like he was tricked. Isn't it interesting that Jesus says to not be lured by the deceitfulness of wealth or the cares of this life? Maybe Disney is getting something that Jesus is onto. Maybe it's not just a good movie. Maybe there's something about the human condition that gets deceived by the cares of this life and the cares of riches, and it leaves us in a tiny little confined space in despair. Now, while it's easy to look down on this man for walking away, the truth is, family, this man believes Jesus in a way that most Christians in the West don't want to. He believes that Jesus is not lying when he says you cannot serve two masters. You cannot serve God and money. He actually believes this man, and so he walks away. He walks away. It's like you can't have this life. It's inconsistent. It, it doesn't line up. You cannot have two masters. It's an inconsistent way of living. It was like the other day I was at this coffee shop with a friend, and we were um, ordering drinks, and I ordered like an alternative milk. I had an oat milk, or yeah, an oat milk chai, which was great. And then I got the breakfast sandwich, like I told you about, with not the sriracha watermelon stuff. But I had the breakfast sandwich, and she's like, oh, yeah, it has a lot of cheese on it. I'm like, that's great. And then she actually looked at me with the audacity. She goes, you just ordered an alternative dairy-free milk, and now you're having a bunch of cheese. You're inconsistent. And I'm, which, in a way that almost would make any secular cringe, Jesus says you can't have it both ways. You can't serve two masters. Followers of Jesus, and here's basically the point, followers in Jesus have to give up wealth as the central thing of their life. This man has to choose. Both wealth and Jesus promise life. Both wealth and Jesus promise a kingdom. Both riches and Jesus promise a new quality of life. And this man has to choose. He makes a choice. He ends up grieving. And you and I run the risk of doing the same. Now, as this man walks away, Jesus looks at his disciples and he says this famous line, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Most of us don't have camels, and a lot of us probably don't sew, so let me give, it's humor. Let me give you, like, a Portland version of this. It's easier for a Prius to drive through a voodoo donut than it is for a camel to fit into the eye of the needle. It's easier for an airplane to get through a front door than it is for, an, for the rich man to get through. It's easier for a person to fit through a people. He's saying it's impossible. It's impossible. You cannot have the kingdom with another king. The only way to enter is by joining in to the life of God. You have to take a new father. You have to have a new family. You have to enter like a child. You can't have it both ways. A choice has to be made. And the reality is this man walks away, and what's scary to think is that Jesus lets him go. 
There's no Jesus chasing after. There's no, in this situation, I do, and I'm thankful. Jesus has chased after me. And I think everyone in this room can say, Jesus chased after you. But in this story, in this moment, Jesus doesn't argue with him. He, he tells him, he puts it out there and lets him decide. I remember a few years ago, I was pastoring at Northwest University up in Kirkland, Washington, outside of Seattle. And this student approached me. Um, I didn't know him super well, but he asked me if we could sit down. He, could, he just emailed, was sending me these emails saying how distressed he is, how frustrated he is with life. He's just feeling distraught and overwhelmed and overworked. And so I sit down with him for coffee. And I remember this, this, this young man. He looks at me and he's just telling me about all these things that are just like bothering him. And he's so distraught. He begins to tell me as he's getting ready to graduate that he's ready to go work and he's working all these hours. He's working 30, 40 hours a week as a college student. I'm like, well, there's a problem. But he's working all these hours. And I ask him, why are you doing that? He's like, well, I really like, I really want to be well off. Like, I don't want to have the life that my family had. I want to take another step. And even he said, when I was a little boy, I made this list of things that I knew that I needed to have to know that I'd finally made it. I knew I wanted this house and I wanted to have this car and I wanted to provide for my wife and my kids. He wanted good things, but he wanted them too badly. And so I asked him, I was like, yo, I don't even know you, but can I just be candid with you? He seems like a straight shooter. So in the least caring, well, kind, probably, I don't know. I, I just was very direct. And I just said, you know what, can I be honest with you? It looks like you're serving two gods. I just think there's two things at the center of your life. And what it's causing you to do is causing you to go away grieved. It's causing you to be distraught. It's, it's, it's dealing with your emotions. You can tell there's two things fighting for the center. Because he told me he was like kind of wanting to follow Jesus, but he also knew he needed these things to finally feel like he arrived in life. And I said, man, I think you just need to make a choice. And Jesus is not going to force himself on you. You have to choose what's going to be at the center. He says, let me think about it. He goes away, texts me a few days later, and he says, hey, Christian, you know, I, I'm making a choice. I'm going after possessions. He's like, he said, I'm going to go after this career that I really want, and I know I really want to get this car one day. And he says, like, I'm not renouncing my faith. I'm not renouncing Jesus, but I'm going to choose this. And I said, you know what? Jesus is going to respect that choice because he loves you. I said, I don't think it leads to life, but you can make that choice. And he did. And I wonder to this day, like, did it lead him to, to despair? Does it leave him like this young, rich ruler? You and I run the risk of living in despair. But it's from this despair, it's from this question that Jesus poses to a follower then or a potential follower then to his followers around walking with him and to us today. It's from there that we actually hear the invitation of Jesus. You know, our church in this season has been thinking and asking a lot. Like, let's just be honest. 2020 has been rough and everyone in the room's like, yeah, <laughs> uh-huh. 2020 has been a lot. And I know in this season, we have been just inviting our church, we as a people, as the people of God in this city right here and now, to stay faithful, to stay close to Jesus, to stay committed, to like keep unifying, to be around our community, to love our neighbors as our, as our neighbors, um, as ourselves. We've been asking and calling our community to continue to practice the way of Jesus and to become like Jesus and to do what he would do if he were us. That is the vision of our church. That's the vision of our lives. We've been asking a lot. And truthfully, I am so pragmatic. I love to some degree when Jesus just tells me really quickly, go and sell everything you have. Give to the poor. I like the pragmatism. I like that he's very clear and cut about it. But truthfully, I don't think that's the invitation of this text. I don't think, I actually think the man got hung up on the wrong thing. I, I don't think the invitation was to sell all you have. The invitation was come and follow. Sell all you have was just how you do it. If, like, if, if the car for this bad metaphor is Jesus, the, the key for this man was sell all you have. But the invitation was, let's go on a journey. Come follow me. The invitation at the end of this text is not just to sell all that you have. The real invitation, the real call of Jesus, the real thing that he wants more than anything else for you to follow him or in the language of our church, be with Jesus. You realize that when we become people who are with Jesus, the becoming like Jesus and the doing what he did, that stuff starts to also flow. Why do you think Jesus asked him about the Ten Commandments? Why do you think he asked him about a life that honors father and mother, that loves neighbor, that does not commit adultery, that does all these things? Because that's the outflow of a life of a person who's been with Jesus. He says, let's see if you've been with me. Let's see if you're close. Is that the sort of person who you are? Jesus says, drop anything that gets in the way of following Jesus. Anything else that's at the center, let it go. The disciples understood this. They actually got it, like, one of the times. They understood it. They understood it so much. Honestly, I love that the disciples don't get it because it gives me hope. <laughs> I'm like, Peter, I get you, man. Like, you go ahead and say what you got to say, sir. I get it. The disciples actually get it in this instance. They get it because they go, Jesus, okay, we've given everything to follow. 
So what do, what's in it for us? Like, what do, what do we get? And I think for some of us, the command today, the invitation of Jesus is to sell anything, get rid of anything that stops you from coming and following Jesus. But for some of us who have done that, and there's people in our church who, can I commend you and encourage you, family? You've been faithful, and you've been steadfast, and you've continued on. The invitation is also the other part of this text. It's to remember that anything you give up, it's actually gain. Anything you give up for Jesus, anything you give up for Jesus, it's gain. And I can actually testify to this. This year, I left my family. I left a community that I loved. I left a good job to a city that is incredible, the best food, minus the watermelon sriracha stuff. Great food, great people. And it felt like such a loss at first. And then all of a sudden, I realized I have a whole new family here. And I can't tell you how Jesus has met me at his promise. And he'll do the same for you. Not only that, Paul, I think, thinks of this so much so that Paul says a life that keeps in step with Jesus, a life that follows the spirit, a life of a person who's entered the kingdom, who is living under God's rule, the life of a person who's given everything to follow Jesus, it'll be marked by love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And isn't that what you and I really need right now more than anything? I can't tell you how many times in the past two years that have had hell for my life and hell for the people in my life and hell for friends that when I should have, honestly, when I should have lost my mind and been at my wit's end, there's something about following Jesus that still gave me a peace. I can't tell. It's almost like you have to know it to know it. Like you have to have experienced it to experience. You have to take Jesus up on his promise to see that he's not lying when he tells you that everything you give is always gain, that he'll always meet you where you're at, that he won't, as the psalmist said, those who wait on him will not be put to shame. They won't be left disappointed. Some of us need to hear today to pay the cost, to pay the price, to sell all you have, to get rid of whatever's in the way. But some of us need to hear that the cost is worth it. It's actually gain. And that's where we get to the end of his text. Jesus' famous words, the first shall be last and the last will be first. In other words, God's kingdom, the way God's rules, life under God's rule turns everything upside down. It's nothing like the systems of this world. It's nothing like the kingdoms of this world. It's nothing like it. Actually, so much so that people who often look like they're first in society, who look like they're first, well, may actually end up last. And those who often look like they're last, they might end up first. So much so that even there's no, no, no more social hierarchy in the kingdom of God. In the kingdom of God, there's no socioeconomic hierarchy. The last and the first, Jesus actually levels the playing field. So what could actually motivate us, though, to be the sort of people who give all that we have and sell that we have to follow Jesus? And not only that, but to keep on keeping on, as some people say, to just keep it going, to not stop. What can motivate us? And not just motivate us. We don't just need motivation. We need empowerment. We need the Spirit of God to actually empower us. What, what could empower us to do that sort of thing, to live into a kingdom that says the first shall be last? Well, it's only a God who's lived that out himself. Because we see in Jesus the first of all firsts become last. We see the richest of all rulers actually use all of his riches and wealth and might to serve those who were poor and last and in need. It's in Jesus that we actually see the king of heaven take the lowest seat in, on, in society on a criminal's cross. And he dies taking the place of a criminal, the king of heaven. Not only that, Paul, and I just love this because it's so powerful. Paul sees so much that the cross of Jesus Christ is so powerful that it actually puts to shame the gods of this world, including the God of money. He says that the principalities, the powers, the rule of darkness have been put to shame by Jesus Christ on the cross. Jesus actually breaks the power of other gods on the cross. Where do we get the power for that? It's, it's in the cross. And not only that, it's in the resurrection. Because in the resurrection, we see the author of life take last place. He dies so that he would be the first, but not the last, to be raised. It's in Jesus, the first above all firsts, becoming last for you and for me. What hasn't God given up for you and for me? Like, you want motivation, and not just like, I always think about Christmas gifts. You know, like, when someone gives you a gift, you're like, oh my gosh, I forgot to give you a gift. And then you're like, yeah, anyone else has been there, like a birthday gift? Then you're like, crap, who are the people that are going to give me a gift that I have to, no, come on, we all do it. Who are the people who are going to give me a gift so I have to make sure I have a gift for them? But have you ever been given a gift by someone and you're just so moved by it? And it's not like, oh, I have to give you something. It's like, I just want to because you're kind and you're good and, like, I have a good relationship. That's all Jesus is doing. What sort of God would give up everything for you and I? I mean, isn't that a God who's trustworthy? A God who we can actually take out his word when he says, sell everything, give everything, and come and follow me. A God who becomes first, or the God who becomes least, He's worth making first. A God who becomes least 
is 100% worth making first. So my question to you, family, is simply this. Like, what's at the center? What is sitting at the center of your life? What's at the center of your heart? What is the kingdom that you're trying to live into? What deep down inside is the thing that you say you need to step into a whole new quality of life? What is it? Imagine what my life and your life would look like if we were people who dethroned anything else that was at the center and just said, no, you don't actually belong here because you can't deliver on your promise. And instead, we've said, Jesus, you can be the center. We made Jesus, as that one song says, the king of my heart. I grew up with a song, I think it came out in 2012, that said, Jesus be the center of it all. Lord Jesus be the center of it all. From beginning to the end, it will always be, it's always been you, Jesus. Jesus, because nothing else matters and nothing in this world will do. Jesus, you're the center and everything revolves around you. Jesus, you are at the center of it all. Even when we worship, what it's doing is it's reorienting our heart to say, you know what, nothing else really matters. There's only one king who deserves that throne. What would your life look like if you put Jesus as first, you put Jesus on the throne? He said that all of their treasures, all of their things, all of their riches don't even come close to the riches that I have in Jesus. What would that do for your life if you believe Jesus had his word? A.W. Tozer sums it up and he says this. The man who has God for his treasure has all things in one. Many ordinary treasures may be denied him, or if he's allowed to have them, the enjoyment of them will be so tempered that they will never be necessary to his happiness. If he must see them go one after one, he'll scarcely feel a sense of loss. We're having the source of all things he has in one, all satisfaction, all pleasure, all light. Whatever he may lose, he's actually lost nothing, but he now has it all in one, and he has it purely, legitimately, and forever. That's the invitation of Jesus, the whole new quality of life that can start here and now. And could you imagine not even death will stop it? It'll just keep on keeping on. Would you put Jesus at the center?